Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Well, a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you all. Because we're in Christmas tide, and if you're counting, it is the seventh day of Christmas, the day of seven swans a swimming, and I thought it would be good to focus on the theology taught in a Christmas song or carol. So I thought it best to study a carol that echoes our study of the Gospel of Luke particularly in the way Luke has used the Old Testament to underline how the Lord Jesus is its fulfillment. So this evening, we will examine the theology and the scriptures behind it of what is the most popular Christmas carol of all time, Joy to the World. Yes, that's right. Joy to the World is the most popular Christmas Carol. It is the top of the pops for Christmas. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, it's not down to some social media poll of Gen Xers or Millennials, but rather on proper historical research. According to the Dictionary of North American Hymnology, Joy to the World has been published in 1,387 hymnals up to 1979, and in about 40 other hymnals since 1979, which puts it far out in front by 413 hymnals of its nearest rival at number two, Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. It's the number one in the top 20 of Christmas carols of modern times. It's also the oldest modern Christmas carol. Now, what do I mean by the oldest modern carol? Well, it turns out, if you research it a bit, you find older stanzas and older tunes in our Christmas carols that reach back into the Middle Ages. But when you check published sources, you find out that all of them were rediscovered or adapted in the 19th century. But Joy to the World was written and published in 1719. It was written by Isaac Watts and first appeared in his Psalms of David imitated under this heading, The Messiah's Coming and Kingdom. Now, who is Isaac Watts? Well, Watts is the modern, to the modern hymn, what Mozart is to the concerto. In other words, they were the first to fully explore this form of music. And there are other similarities. Like Mozart, Isaac Watts was a child prodigy. He read Latin and Greek by the age of four. By seven, he was able to construct stanzas of poetry almost instantaneously. He was also born at just the right moment 
in musical history. At the height of his powers was the time when music was evolving from the Baroque to the classical. He's the same generation as Johann Sebastian Bach. His father was a former Anglican. He had been ejected in 1662 for his refusal to conform to the new Act of Uniformity written by the bishops who returned with Charles II from exile. So at the time of Watts's childhood, English parish churches had developed a tradition of congregational singing of the psalms only, sung in meter to well-known tunes of the time. Indeed, very much like we here at All Souls Anglican Church do with our Trinity metrical psalter. But you see, for Isaac Watts, freed from the constraints of Church of England regulation, he could imagine another way. His great insight was that the believing Christian should read the Bible back to front, and that should be reflected in how we sang the Psalms. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, perhaps some of you are like me, and when you get a mystery novel, I always turn to the end to find out who did it and why. And once I've discovered what's at the end, I go back to the beginning, and that way I can spot all the clues and understand all the nuances that bring about the great reveal in the library with the detective at the end. Now we know from Luke chapter 24 how Jesus explained to the disciples on the Emmaus Road how to interpret all the things in the Old Testament. All of them, he said, concerned him. Why he had to suffer and die. How he was to rise again from the dead and return to judge. So Watts argued that we should not just sing the Psalms and forget about Jesus. We should sing the Psalms from the perspective of their fulfillment. That fulfillment being centered on our Savior, his birth, his ministry, his substitutionary death, his resurrection and ascension. So when millions of Christians sing this great hymn at Christmas, they are celebrating the great news of the incarnation, the coming of the Messiah, and declaring, let earth receive her king, let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and angels sing. When we sing joy to the world, the Lord has come, we mean Bethlehem and the gift of the infant Christ. But that is not the end of the story of our redemption, is it? We can really see Watt's knowledge of the scriptures here. Remember, the title of his book is Psalms of David Imitated. You see, joy to the world is an interpolation of Psalm 98, our psalm we sang this evening to that well-known carol tune. Psalm 98 declares creation's joy when the Lord comes to rule and to judge. So when joy to the world is rightly and triumphantly sung by believers at Christmastide, it also gathers in the second 
coming of Christ. Isaac Watts was being very pastoral here. He wants to remind you and me that Christmas isn't over. He wants to comfort the believing Christian and shake up the Christian in name only. Earth will fully receive her king when Christ comes again to judge, to reign, and to rule. Now, that we know Watt's pastoral purpose in this carol, can we ask now, how does he do that? Where do we find this transition of Psalm 98 to Christ's coming? Where in the scriptures does he go to make this point? It's all focused in the verse 3 of the hymn, of hymn number 195 in your Trinity Psalter. You may want to have a look at it with me. Here's what it says. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. Now, the reversal of the curse is promised in the coming of the Messiah and the fulfillment of his atoning work. Now, notice what Watts is saying here. Implicit in this third verse is the promise of the new creation. Therefore, we as believers live in the light of that promise. Watts teaches us that even as we look back to Bethlehem and as we celebrate Christmas, we look forward to the work finished and our struggle being over. And this is where he doesn't pull any punches. It's right there. Do you see it? It it, it is his reference to the curse. Christ's victory over sin is declared to extend far as the curse is found. So Watts wants us to ask three simple questions here. What curse? How far does it extend? Where is it found? We find the curse in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 19 on page 3 of your pew Bible. After Eve has eaten of the forbidden tree in disobedience, and then Adam also ate in disobedience, and after they found themselves facing God in the reality of their sin, God first cursed the serpent. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Then God cursed the woman. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Then he came to curse Adam, and through Adam to all humanity. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. 
and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. By Adam, our federal head, the curse of sin came upon all humanity. We are dust, who must return to the dust, for the wages of sin is death. All creation is under the effects of the curse. Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam is told. The curse is God's righteous judgment of sin, and the effect of the curse is death. How does the Bible define the curse? The curse of God is the opposite of the blessing of God. So to understand the curse in the limited time that we have, we should pause to consider what the scripture means when it speaks of the blessing of God. So to do that, I want you to consider the blessing God taught Aaron in Numbers chapter 6. It's one familiar to you. Here it is. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. There's a parallelism here that makes each point reinforce the other to that deeper conclusion in peace, God's peace. So that if you don't understand the one, the other two will explain the meaning to you. To be blessed by God is to bathe in the radiant glory that emanates from his face. As the Apostle John tells us to comfort us, we will see him as he is. Your life in the blessing of God is nothing but a life of divine benediction and his divine peace in his presence. So then, how do we understand the curse? All we need do is to reverse number six to its opposite. Listen to it now. The Lord curse you and abandon you. The Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment. The Lord turn his back on you and remove his peace from you forever. God's curse has fallen upon all human beings, first because of Adam's sin, and then because of our own. In Adam, we all sinned. In Adam, we all died. Where is the curse found? Everywhere we look, we see the curse and its malignant effects. How far does it extend? To every Adam, every molecule of creation, from coast to coast, shore to shore, sky to sky, to every square centimeter of the planet. That's how far the curse is found. The Apostle Paul says the whole creation groans. It groans together in travail, waiting for its redemption. And travail is a bone-shattering writhing, 
torturous pain. We live on a planet that rides in pain under the curse of God. And every single human being is found under this curse. For Romans 3.23 says, There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now here's the thing. Every single human being knows this. In our prosperity and our wealth, we can deny it. We can anesthetize ourselves to it, covered in our comfort. But all it takes is a medical test result we weren't expecting, a ride in an ambulance, a phone call of a sudden death, a new headline of a cruelty in our area, or even a murder. We know in our hearts the world is not the way it should be. It is cursed. We are cursed. So then, how can we sing about joy to the world? The unbeliever may sing to forget. At Christmas tide, wrapping themselves in the nostalgia of a younger, simpler time when they were children. But the believer, the believer sings with tears of hope, looking forward. It's a longing hope because he or she has heard the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was our epistle reading this evening in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14 on page 973 of your pew Bible. Listen to it again. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So here, as you can understand, is the gospel of Christ, the good news. First, he gives the bad news. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. All humanity is born under this curse, under the law. The congregation that originally received Paul's letter would have understood immediately where Paul is going for his argument. It's Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28. At the end of the series of curses that God delivers from Mount Nebo, we find the most comprehensive of all of them. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So Paul, in Galatians 3, is citing Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. We are born under the curse. We are cursed by it. And the law offers no escape. We cannot work our way out from under the curse. So where is the good news? Where is joy to the world? 
It's right there in verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What we sinners could not and cannot do for ourselves, Christ has done for us. It was Jesus on the cross. When in the cross, not only is the Father's justice satisfied in the atoning work of his Son, but in bearing our sins, the Lamb of God removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. He removes the curse and the power of the law to condemn us. How does he do it? By being cursed. He redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. Let me repeat that. He redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. It was not by being a curse. It was by becoming a curse. I mean, ponder that for a moment. He who was the incarnation of the glory of God now becomes the incarnation of the divine curse. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The sinless Son of God became incarnate as the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And the sinless Son of God became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. Because God imputes to him the sin of every one of his people. We see here in this moment on the cross of Calvary the most intense, dense concentration of evil on this planet. He became a curse for us by hanging on a tree in fulfillment of the scripture. Christ died on the cross in our place. Bearing our shame and guilt, paying the full penalty for our sin, dying as our substitute in our place by his shed blood. He had to be utterly and completely forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't just feel forsaken, my dear friends. He was forsaken. This is the good news that the carol communicates to the believer. We will either bear the curse ourselves or we will flee to him, to the one who took it for me and for you. He redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. He died our death in our place, bearing our sins, redeeming us from the curse. The father turned his back. Jesus was damned because that's what it meant to be cursed. The pure became impure. Now, I don't pretend to understand this, but I know it is true, for it is the testimony of the scriptures themselves. I know also by the truth of the empty tomb on the third day, the father raised him from the dead ensuring and giving us this sign of his complete victory over the curse. The curse is broken. The penalty paid in full. 
And I know that for every person who embraces the Lord Jesus Christ will sing this carol with a conviction that comes in knowing that he has broken the curse as far as it is found. And I know this as well, that every person who may pass us by on the king's highway or every person that draws breath around the world that has not been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, still draws breath under the curse of God. And if we believe that, my dear friends, then what would prevent us from simply explaining the gospel to someone that we care about simply and clearly? It is the only hope we have. But it is hope enough. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. Far as the curse is found, he comes to make his blessings flow to you. His righteous robe is ready to embrace you and wrap you in it for all eternity. The curse is broken for you and for me. Joy to the world. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.